Career MLB Show is presented by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. It's a beautiful day for a podcast. Let's play two. This is the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, home to such hit shows as Binge Mode and On Shuffle, our new music podcast hosted by Micah Peters. As always, be sure to check out the ringer.com home to the NBA draft guide. The draft is Thursday. The only way you could know more about the draft is if you were living in Luka Doncic's garage. So short of that, you should check out the draft guide as well as all of our World Cup coverage, including Ringer FC, which is producing new shows every weekday. But this, as I've said, is the Ringer MLB show, so that's what we're going to talk about. First up, as of this Monday, Jeff Lunau, the general manager of the Houston Astros, is now the president of baseball operations and general manager of the Houston Astros, a title he was given by ownership, most likely because they approve of the job he's doing, as the Astros have won 12 in a row. They have swept their uh, recent 10-game uh, road trip, and here to talk about them is a man who is writing about those self-same Astros. Zach Cram. Hello. I feel like we were supposed to be worried about them at some point. I was looking as I am researching my piece, which comes out this week, and found, especially with their offense, a lot of our coverage of the Astros and the coverage at large was about how dominant their pitching staff had been with Garrett Cole coming over from Pittsburgh and Justin Verlander looking like a Cy Young favorite. Their pitching hasn't been a problem at all this season, but as late as May 21st, I found a piece asking what was wrong with the Astros offense. I know you wrote about how a lot of people were concerned about Jose Altuve. Even now, it seems like there are some Astros fans who are concerned about the offense's home road splits. And you look at the leaderboards and look who's at the top of the best offense in baseball. Unsurprisingly, it's the Astros. They lead in WRC+, Plus, which is sort of my favorite catch-all offensive statistic. They're second in runs per game, only .02 runs behind the Yankees, so they might as well be tied for first. And this isn't surprising. The Astros last year had the best lineup since the Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig Yankees, and they returned basically all of those same players. So this isn't a surprise necessarily, but it's, I guess, a return to what we expected after a month or two of... Not worry, I would say, but a little more concerned than anyone had about the lineup last year. And I think the numbers look a little bit better now just because of their last road trip. I mean, they just absolutely keelhauled the A's. And you just look up and down this lineup. And and with a couple exceptions, you know, Derek Fisher, I don't know if we're you know, he's back in the minor leagues now. I don't know if if we're at a point where we're willing to say he just didn't pan out. Um but Altuve is now hitting 342. Uh, look at the guys who who had sort of slow starts, and you know you look at Correa, Bregman, George Springer. All those guys are have batting averages in the 260s, 270s. But they're all three are walking a lot. All three are hitting for plenty of power. Marwin Gonzalez was terrible for much of the season, but in June he's hitting 450, 522, uh, 725. And you look at guys like Tony Kemp and Max Stassi and. They're just filling in the gaps. They've they've been uh, able to uh, sort of fill out whenever somebody struggled, just the next guy up. And even guys, you know, Kemp and Stassi have had uh, cups of coffee in the big leagues before and not hit that well. And they're 
hitting like crazy. They're hitting just as well as Correa, Bregman, uh, Springer, and Altuve right now. I think that's the important part. The Astros, you know what you're going to get with the top of the lineup with Springer, Bregman, Altuve, and Correa. That's the best top four of any lineup in baseball. But what made the Astros so impressive last year was the bottom of the lineup also hit well with Josh Reddick and Brian McCann had a good year and Marwin Gonzalez. And this year, of the 12 players who have had the most plate appearances, 10 of them have been above average hitters. If you get above average production out of the seven, eight, nine spots leading into that top of the order again, it's really hard to turn over a lineup. And the two guys who aren't above average are McCann, who plays catcher, and Jake Marisnik, who plays an outfield spot. Well, the two guys you mentioned, Stassi and Tony Kemp, have filled in and been just as good as the top of the order. So they don't have a hole in their lineup at all. I wonder if Stassi will start eating even more into McCann's playing time if they continue to hit like this. Stassi, who, as you mentioned, had some cups of coffee before, he still qualifies as a rookie, even though this is his sixth big league season just because he had played only a handful of games in every preceding season, so he never went over the plate appearance limit. But not only does he have an OPS plus in the 140s, but he's rated as the best framing catcher in baseball too. It's kind of like how it's not fair to other teams in the AL East that like the Yankees turn eighth round draft picks into pitchers who can throw 97 miles an hour. If the Astros, who already have such a strong core, are turning fourth uh, catchers like Stassi into like legitimate all-star candidates, then that's just the end for the rest of the AL West. And that's even before we get back to the pitching. And what's uh, stuck out to me is they've cultivated, even after trading Musgrove and uh, and Fleas away, they've cultivated incredible depth uh, in terms of guys they could use as starters. But Brad Peacock right now is sort of a situational uh, high leverage reliever coom setup guy. Uh, Colin McHugh hasn't made a start. He's pitched. Uh, he's allowed four runs all year out of the pen. And both of those guys haven't gotten a start because they've only used the five starting pitchers. And Cole's been great. Cole's he's he hasn't gotten beaten up a little bit, but he's had a couple starts where he allows the odd three run homers. Sort of the same with with Charlie Morton. Justin Verlander's been I don't probably the best pitcher in baseball this year. And uh, given how long we've had Justin Verlander, how long we've been able to, you know, watch him perform on this level. And as well as he he pitched in last year's postseason, I wonder if we're like almost taking for granted how good he is right now. Um, But even then, even, you know, Dallas Keuchel's had his ups and downs. McCullers has been a very interesting league average pitcher, uh, more or less, which I feel like is very Lance McCullersy. But I don't, this is, so the point is this, I don't know if they go, it feels like if you're this good, you should make a move at the deadline. I don't know where that uh, where that move would be. They might need a left-hander to lever. Tony Sipp has been fine this year, but I don't know if he's that reliable in the playoffs. But then again, if you think about the AL playoff picture, maybe Andrew Benintendi, maybe Greg Bird. I don't know what really powerful left-handed bat the Astros need to combat, especially when they have someone like Chris Davinsky who is right-handed, but his changeup makes him so effective against lefties. I think your point about uh, over, or I think your point about underappreciating Verlander is apt. We have both written about Garrett Cole this year. He was the story coming over from Pittsburgh because he turned into the ace. He kind of always had been destined to be since he was the top pick in the draft. But Verlander, 
like I said, is probably the Cy Young favorite at this point. The last time he won a Cy Young was in 2011. The guy who finished second to him was Jared Weaver. The guy who finished third was James Shields. Jose Valverde received votes. CJ Wilson, Dan Heron, Mariano Rivera. In the National League, guys like Ian Kennedy and Tim Lincecum received votes. Like That was a really long time ago, if you think of how long a pitcher's dominance is supposed to last. And I know that Verlanders didn't last the whole time, that he had a dip and then has bounced back. But if anything, that makes it even more impressive that he's still around when all those other guys are either washed up or retired or both. Here, I'll, I'll go one better right now. Uh, the first time he got Cy Young votes was 2006. Uh, and one other Tigers pitcher uh, got Cy Young votes that year. Would you like to venture a guess? Uh, Kenny Rogers? Kenny Rogers, who is now 53 years old. So that's how long Verlander's been around. I was um, sort of talking about this idly with uh, another writer uh, down in Houston a couple days ago. Is Verlander the best pitcher of the 21st century, except for, sorry, except for Clayton Kershaw, because I forgot we still have to qualify all these discussions like that. That's an interesting question. I guess it in part depends on what you value there. Like Randy Johnson won Cy Young's in the first three years of the century. But I think if you're going the full time, it it's very well might be. It's, I guess, Roy Halladay's up there and... Pedro Martinez was sort of at the back end of his career at that point. Yeah, it, it's an interesting it, it discussion. Depends on how much you how much you value value. You mentioned Randy Johnson, Pedro, like Kurt Schilling, and uh, even maybe Roger Clements, guys who pitched very well into the two thousands, but are really like we really consider to be nineties uh, pitchers. I think if you look at what Verlander has done since he came over from Detroit last August. Going forward, he will probably end up supplanting. Like we had always used Randy Johnson being traded with the Astros and CeCe Sabathia being traded from Cleveland to Milwaukee as sort of the archetypal uh, ace comes over and a guy, he puts his team on his back, so to speak, and carries him to the playoffs. Verlander, both from what he did last postseason and has continued to do this year, will probably end up supplanting them. Yeah. And there's a very specific kind of rental, you know, where you think, and I've I've gone on and on about this over the past couple of years. It's like, that's my favorite kind of trade is the ace who comes over and sort of validates an up and coming team. And, you know, you mentioned those guys, David Price would be with the, um, with the Blue Jays would be another example of that. And it's, you know, you look at those, those pitchers and those pitchers going on to, or that kind of pitcher going on to, to have a lasting impact is is Cliff Lee the only recent example? You know that that might be the only recent example I can think of. But even that's more complicated because he got traded away and then came back as a free agent. I haven't answered your question. I was running a, a uh, query. Um, by the end of okay. the season, Verlander, assuming he continues at anywhere near his current pace, will probably have the lead for pitcher WAR since the year two thousand. Right now, he's 1.5 behind the late Roy Halladay. And CeCe Sabathia, Kershaw, and Zach Granke are hot on his tail. So you very so, well may be right. Verlander will be the best pitcher of the 21st century in a month or two. Yeah, there you go. And he's putting together, you know, you think of Halladay just not only in terms of great volume of innings, um, but there were a couple seasons, like 2010, 2003, where he was just 
just head and shoulders above the rest of the class. And Verlander's putting together another one of those seasons. Um, I think the most interesting pitcher on on the Astros right now is probably Dallas Keuchel because he, as recently as the middle of last year, was expected to be the nailed on game one starter for one of the best teams in baseball. I don't know, like if if the playoffs started today, I don't know where, if anywhere, he fits in the in the uh, potential playoff rotation. Like, do you piggyback him and McCullers maybe in a game game four or something like that? But you know, he's a uh, a very interesting pitcher to follow considering that he's a free agent at the end of the season. Keuchel's in an interesting position too because last year when the Astros were playing around with who would be at the back of their playoff rotation, guys like McCullers or Morton would have their stuff play up in relief because they could throw harder, they could rely just on their curveball like McCullers did. I'm not sure if Keuchel's that kind of guy. I don't know how much he'll be able to raise his velocity in relief. Potentially, he could end up solving their left-handed reliever problem if they use him as a lefty in the bullpen. I'm not sure if AJ Hinch would do that, but it's certainly a possibility. And it is say, fun- I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what clubhouse problems that causes if you turn Dallas Keuchel into a situ- into a situational lefty because you remember he was the the guy who spoke up after uh the July 31st trade that deadline uh came and went and they didn't make a move. And now they've brought in two guys who have for sure, knocked him out of the front of that rotation. And it's funny, and I guess speaks to the state of the Astros now, that the biggest concern is a guy with a 4.15 ERA in the rotation, which basically any other team in the majors would gladly have. Even the Yankees, who are up there with Houston among the best teams in baseball, really have one and a half reliable pitchers right now. So the fact that Keuchel's the main concern just speaks to how we spent this podcast so far gushing about Houston and about Verlander and the offense. And that's really, they don't have any weaknesses. I don't know even if they sustain an injury, they have so much depth that anywhere on the diamond, they'll be able to fill in. It's an enviable position to be. And I know after the 2016 World Series, we were talking a lot about how the Cubs might become the next dynasty. It seems like the Astros have even taken that to the next level, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised if they rest the best record in baseball away from the Yankees. The schedule over the next month is just as easy as it has been over the last 10 days. exactly where I wanted to go next. Yeah, they don't play... You look at their next uh, several opponents, they don't play another team that has a winning record right now until the Angels on July 20th. And... Uh, the Angels are only, I think, three games over 500 right now. So they could, I mean, they could get almost to the trade deadline. I think they play Seattle uh, the last weekend of July. And like they could get that far without playing another team with a winning record. I don't know what, like, could they, they could easily go 20 and 10. Like they could maybe even go something like 24 and and six over the, over the next 30 games and wind up heading into August-ish with, uh, you know, almost a, a two to one advantage in run score. Right now, they're plus one fifty eight. So, th- I mean, I think that it's sort of muddied the waters because the Yankees and Red Sox have been outstanding, and they've it's been, ex- you know, pretty much the the same three way battle for the top of the American League right now that that most people would have predicted at the end of the season or at the sorry the beginning of the season. And the Mariners have have hung on, beating up on their own kind of weak schedule in. Uh, in late May and early June. And, you know, we're Ben and I are going to talk about the Mariners a little bit later, but if I, this is 
this is where if the Astros are going to pull away from the pack, this is a great time to do it. I feel sad for the Mariners, not because of how they're positioned. They're likely to make their first playoff since 2001. But since the last time they played Houston, the Mariners are 8-3. and three. They swept the Angels. They won two out of four against Boston. Really good stretch for the Mariners. But the Astros won 11-0, so the Mariners fell from first place to second place in that span. It's absurd, and it's probably just going to continue to widen as the two teams diverge. Yeah, and all that said, you know who I would take? If, if you asked me to back one horse for the AL pennant, Cleveland? I'd probably pick the Cleveland Indians. Yep. Yeah, because they're the only team I can, gar- I can almost guarantee will win its division. And then when you come to the playoffs, I, I mean, we'll talk about this certainly more as October approaches, but the top four, even five, if you think the Mariners are as good as their record shows, teams in the American League are all phenomenal. And especially heading into the playoffs where Cleveland can shorten its rotation and bullpen, it's going to be a bloodbath. And um, I imagine a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. So we'll uh, talk to you again uh, as the American League pennant race uh, develops. But until then, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again to Zach Cram. We'll be right back with Matt James after this. If you have back pain or even if you've been lucky enough to avoid it, you need a teeter inversion table to keep your back and joints feeling great. As the best-known name in inversion tables since 1981, Teeter has been safely certified by UL Laboratories and FDA cleared as a Class 1 medical device for back pain and related conditions. It uses gravity and your own body weight to decompress the spine and relieve pressure on your discs and surrounding nerves. Decompressing on a Teeter for a few minutes a day is a great way to maintain a healthy spine and active lifestyle without the pain. No wonder more than 3 million people have put their trust in Teeter. For a limited time, you can get the Teeter Inversion Table plus bonus accessories and a free pair of gravity boots that let you invert at home or at the gym. To get this deal and save more than $148, just go to teeter.com slash MLB. You'll also get free shipping, a 60-day money-back guarantee, and free returns, so there's no risk. But first, you have to go to teeter.com slash MLB. That's T-E-E-T-E-R slash MLB to get the Teeter with bonus accessories and a free pair of gravity so for this next segment uh i wanted to bring in somebody who is good at things i'm not good at i'm the kind of person who nearly failed at a finger painting and my guest today is one of our crack team of designers a man with astute visual taste matt james hey thank you i got a b in finger painting so (laughs) happy to be here so the all-star uniforms came out uh over um since we last podcasted and uh I'm, we're going to talk about that, and then I'm going to ask you your thoughts uh, as a Mets fan on Jacob deGrom and his relationship with donuts and metaphors about same. So sure. let's start with the start with the All-Star game. And so you don't hate certain segments of, of this uniform set. So there's there's the BP hats, the BP jerseys and the game hats with the white front. So right. let's let's talk about what you like. OK, uh, I don't I don't absolutely hate anything but the three panel hats this year. I know you we talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, the 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 hats that they're going to be wearing during the actual game have, you know, three color segments on them. They're kind of darker at the back and then a highlight color in the middle and then white at the front uh with a colored brim. And uh I think we both agree that that is way too much. Uh <laughs> it's a lot of colors. Yeah. on the hats. Uh the one thing I do like about them is that they uh, the colors of the All Star logos 
uh, kind of match that highlight color on the hat at least. So, you know, you're not forcing yeah. Nationals colors onto uh, onto the, a Pirates hat or, you know, s- something like that. Um, but, yeah, they're kind of ugly. Uh, those, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the ones for the, uh, the workout day, the ones that uh, are, are a little bit better. They're, they're, you know, all one color. They're, they're quieter, even with like the ring of stars around the logo. Like it's just the, the three and the white front hat. And, you know, we could talk about the Expo's influence on that, but it, it's just so much, you know, <laughs> and it, they're going to be worn with the traditionally muted, uh, um, regular MLB uniforms, whereas I think the the ring of stars around the logo with the with the all star game jerseys, I think that could be that could be a decent look. Yeah, I think it will be because it's all one kind of unified theme uh uh visually. But uh I mean I, I, I just think that this kind of no one's ever really happy with the all star jerseys and uniforms, I don't I don't think. And I, I think that the MLB might want to consider not theming each year's designs after the city that's hosting the game. Um, and okay. I, th- I think that this year would be a great time to stop considering that next year the event is hosted by the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. Well, they're, I mean, they're getting rid of Chief Wahoo, or at least, you know, they said they are. I'll believe that when I see it. Right. So there's not going to be that much. I I don't mind the themes uh, when there's something interesting to it. Like last year with Miami, they did the uh, um, the All-Star Game uniforms in, in the orange and blue, yep. and they had the... Um, the the colorful socks. I went on a a pitbull cruise this off season, and my wife bought a, a hat that said Dale, and it, the hat was in a pattern and uh, not dissimilar to the socks that they wore. And I thought all that was great and playful. <laughs> um, but the the Nats have just like it's an, an almost inexcus it like it doesn't look bad, but it's boring. It's boring, and, and you know, yeah. And and this is this is something that they they had to deal with too when it was in Cincinnati. It's like, what's the flair of the Cincinnati Reds? Well, they had some stripes on some hats in the past. You know, there's just some teams that don't have a lot visually to draw from. Um, and Miami was actually one of the more successful ones recently, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. You know, the uh, the year was in San Diego with the the yellow and brown like that's ugly but people like that for some reason there's nothing <laughs> else that's not it, this is the problem like every team is red white and either navy or sort of a royal blue like some combination of those three colors and there's just so little color variation that it at best it looks boring and the you know the word mark on front of, on the front of the uh, the batting practice jerseys for this year's all-star game just looks sort of clip arty, like it's sort of cheap and it's not fun or anything like that. Yeah. Which is why I think they'd be better off just kind of, you know, you can make a, an all-star Jersey that, uh, that, you know, represents the city that they're in and, and, and the culture of that city without necessarily needing to rely so heavily on, on how the team's uh, branding looks like, you know? You don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. go all in on <laughs> the Cincinnati Reds uniforms or whatever if you're in Cincinnati or I, I just think there's a way to do it where where you don't it doesn't need to look like the team. It needs to look like the city. And there's plenty of cities where it would be interesting to see what a fresh take on you know that city's culture looks like uh in a uniform. 
so the the three panel hats for the actual game are uh i imagine deliberately an homage to sort of the night or i think it's like early, late 70s early 80s expos and that's that's another like this is my other complaint about it like how much do you want to harken back to the nationals history as the expos when they're they've got their own identity we're finally far enough in the past to to really think about the nationals as their own entity beyond the sort of troubled beginnings of the franchise in washington right not troubled in terms of that but you know in terms of the move and leaving montreal and there you know if you've read the jonah carey book you know what a kick in the nuts that was for montreal yeah, and you know it's like you said, it's an all star game. It's not you know the anniversary of the team or whatever. Uh, so I, I don't f- see the need necessarily to to visually address that expose history. That so I, I agree with you on that. So I didn't ask you to prep for this, but we sort of walked into this. You know, with MLB uniforms all sort of largely looking the same, what what do you want to see more of? when you look at the game visually? Is it just a, a departure from color schemes or is there something else that the teams could be doing? You know, should we bring back sleeveless jerseys or pillbox hats or something like that? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think that the, uh, the the form of the uniforms should remain consistent. I, I just think that there can be a little bit more experimentation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a sport where, you know, we've been around over 100 years with baseball and a lot of the allure of baseball is tied to the nostalgia that goes with it being, you know, the nation's national pastime. Uh, so there's there's a tendency to to keep things the way they are in baseball. Um, unfortunately, that means things look quite drab <laughs> most of the time. Um, I just want to see some experimentation, I guess. Uh, some bolder color choices. Uh, if you have a bold color in your in your teams, uh, like you know the Astros bright orange jerseys are, I mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of those. Uh, I, it's a flash of color that that you know you don't always see around the league, the teams in the league. Um, so just so just just team... more flash, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know you do have to you do have to respect the history of 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 the baseball aesthetic at the same time so it's yeah. tricky it is tricky but the diamondbacks uh just bore me to death everything about the diamondbacks visually really? bore me to death i love those uniforms i think they're i think they're hideous but i think like the the use of like the mint green we're going to look back on that like the astros tequila sunrise jerseys in 30 <laughs> years and and think and think of them as like trend setting bold uh bold designs i wish they still had like the the bleeding ankle uh, design on the pants, all that. I I love everything about it. Oh, really? Okay. Even though it's, it is. Even a, though I don't, I could see that it it doesn't always look good. Yeah, I, I and like I said, I do appreciate that they you know are trying some things there. Uh, it's certainly more interesting than some of some of the more boring jerseys in the league. Um, so, kudos to them for doing something, I guess. But. Yeah, the yeah. the mint green that mint so, green uh, is is actually pretty pretty interesting. I, I do kind of like that, but the just the the black and white and red is I don't know. And the D backs is not appealing yeah, to go, me. Yeah, I don't know. Bring back the purple. <laughs> Bring back the purple. 
So one team that, whose uniforms I actually do like a lot uh, are the New York Mets. And uh, they're after an 11-1 start, they have gone in the tank. And they're talking about, uh, they're, we're, we're hearing the first rumblings about uh, a potential Jacob deGrom trade as he's pitching as well as he or indeed most uh major league pitchers have ever pitched. Um, Mike Puma of the, of the New York post quoted a, uh, a, a team official uh, discussing a, De, a DeGrom trade. He said uh, the trade metaphorically speaking, at least you would hope is the Mets will ask for six donuts for DeGrom. If they can get that. Maybe there's a trade to be made, but three donuts probably won't get it done. So how does that strike you as a, oh, it's, as a Mets fan? It strikes me as uh, knowing that the front office has a basic grasp of what negotiating is, uh, <laughs> which is actually more than I expected. <laughs> Asking for something and then receiving a counter offer that's less and then hopefully coming in in the middle, all while thinking about donuts. So yeah, this is about the level uh, as a Mets fan that I've come to uh, expect from the front office, I think. What kind of donuts are, would you be looking for? Would it, you know, would you, this being the Mets, it's probably going to be salary relief or something, but, uh, you know, are you looking for sort of long shot potential superstars, guys who, you know, you think of, um, you know, DeGrom himself was a, uh, a, a real developmental project or do you want guys who are sort of closer to the majors? You know, Michael Conforto was this kind of draft pick, um, what kind of package would you want in order to be okay with giving up to Grom? Well, first of all, I'm there's nothing that's really going to make me feel okay with giving up to Grom. Uh, it's going to hurt. It's going to feel awful, uh, especially if he ends up on the Yankees, which just feels like fate somehow, <laughs> cruel fate. Uh, but I guess what I want, looking at uh, the batting <laughs> of this team and just how pretty much Everything aside from some of the pitching has imploded on this team. Let's look as far down the road as as possible because nothing's happening anytime soon with this team. So I want them to look way into the future, uh, just getting the best assets they can, no matter what that timeline looks like, how far uh, in the future that timeline looks like. Because, man, it is bleak. Okay. It is so bleak. And I, I, I knew well, it at the start of the season when they were doing well. Uh, I saw some, some fellow Mets fans start to harp on some of the power rankings that weren't respecting the Mets. And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, well, I'm, I'm not really going to engage in this yet because I do think that the sky will start falling soon. And oh boy, did it. Well, if there's one ownership group that I trust to take an extremely long <laughs> view on things, it's the Wilpons. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you know, just kick the can down the road. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm just used to misery, so <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll hope far in the future because it seems more realistic further in the future than any time in the near future. Okay. Well, thanks for, on that depressing note, thanks for, for joining me and, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you again when the Mets are good or maybe even before that. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm hopefully going to live past 50, so we'll see. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Mike. We're going to bring Ben Lindbergh out of the bullpen, but first we're going to hear from our sponsor, LegalZoom. 
Chances are you have a few things left on your 2018 to-do list. That's why LegalZoom is extending their friends and family discount to everyone right now. For a limited time, you can get 10% off the things you keep putting off. If you're a small business owner, make your accountant happy by saving on your LLC, DBA, S-Corp, and more. You can also save money wrapping up your last will or living trust. LegalZoom's not a law firm, but if legal questions are holding you up, their network of independent attorneys can provide advice for your business, estate plan, and more. Accomplish the things you need to get done at LegalZoom.com now and save 10% with LegalZoom's friends and family discount. Just be sure to enter promo code MLB in the referral box at checkout. This offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry to LegalZoom.com now and use promo code MLB for 10% off. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com. So earlier in the show, I talked to Zach Cram about the first place team in the American League West. And now I'm expanding the focus of this show to the top two teams in the AL West standings and bringing on a man who just recently wrote about the shocking Seattle Mariners, Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Mariner magic. I know. Soto mojo. Do people in Seattle still say that? I don't know. They should be saying that again if they aren't. So I we've got a serious, you know, set of serious questions to to ask about the Mariners, but I'll give you 10 bucks if you can tell me what Wade LeBlanc did <laughs> to turn into 2000 or I, I call them lefty 2012 Chris Medlin the other day. Yeah, I recently read an article that attempted to figure out what Wade LeBlanc did. And I think the conclusion was just that we all know nothing about baseball because that's that's basically it. I mean, I think he has maybe adjusted his pitch mix and that sort of thing, but it's not as if he is suddenly throwing an entirely new pitch or throwing way harder. He still kind of looks like Wade LeBlanc, except for all of his numbers. So I don't know. Every team in baseball seemingly has had him and given up on him at some point, including the Astros. So whatever we missed, everyone else missed. So I guess that's some comfort. So the title of your story sort of it's I think it it fits nicely with the way I feel about the Mariners, which is the Mariners are first place flukes and they deserve it. Yeah. And like this team's been really good, but you can see all the obvious ways where as opposed to the Astros, just not to belabor that comparison, but they are in direct competition for uh, the division lead. You know, you could see the Astros with their outstanding starting pitching one through five, their the depth of their lineup, which is just now waking up. And the Mariners, you could see the seams and it's still happening. And and they're fluky in all the familiar ways that uh, the 20 what was it the 2015 Rangers were fluky. I think the mm-hmm. 2012 Orioles. The yeah, every few years, backs. there's yeah. one of these teams and mm-hmm. it reignites the debate about whether it's luck or timing or skill. But yes, they are the latest in that lineage. So what, you know, what is, how do they fit into that lineage? Because it's not, you know, it's not 2012 Orioles bullpen. It's not, you know, I guess James Paxson versus Brandon Webb might be a, a decent comparison, but, you know, what are, what are they doing that is, is allowing them to, to, you know, keep pace with the, with the Astros? Yeah, I mean, they are a solid team, I think, putting all the luck and chance aside. This isn't the 2007 Diamondbacks who were outscored on the season and still somehow won 90 games and made the playoffs. Mariners are a pretty good team, but they look like a great team because of all of the amazing Mariners stats that I will reel off right now. So they're 23 and 10 in one run games. I think everyone knows that, but they are 31 and 12 in one or two run games. That's a 721 winning percentage. 
that would be the best record in such games of all time. So I don't want to get into a debate about the definition of games over 500 because that's a separate podcast, but you all know what I mean. The Mariners are 19 games over 500 in one or two run games and one game over 500 in all other games. They are fourth in winning percentage in the majors this year and 12th in run differential. They've actually had a inferior run differential to the Angels who are trailing them by eight games as we speak. So None of this really makes sense. Every way of accounting that we have for looking at teams and judging what their record should be, the Mariners are about 100 points of winning percentage ahead of that. So we know from those past examples that we just mentioned, this isn't something that stays consistent that teams do season after season. So it is largely luck and timing and clutchness. There's a, a fan graph stat called clutch that the Mariners are leading on the offensive side and second overall on the pitching side. So basically, they've just been good in high leverage moments when it counts. They've had the runs come at the right time. And they're a decent team below all of that. So you add it all up and they're one of the best teams in baseball so far. I don't think this can continue, but at this point, it doesn't necessarily need to. Yeah, I'll say this too. It does. It might not continue forever, but it also, we've seen it continue for an entire season. Yeah. Um, and just look, and this would be less mystifying if not, you know, just looking at Kyle Seeger has a, a 272 OBP. D Gordon, uh, he and D Gordon are uh, two of the three Mariners regulars right now with an OPS plus under 100. Mm-hmm. Um, Robinson Cano is, as we, as we know and have d- discussed on the pod, suspended. And those are probably three of their five best position players. But one thing that, um, or two guys who I think we, we, have underrated historically are the two players who came back in that Taiwan Walker trade, mm-hmm. uh, Gene Segura and Mitch Haniger, who, and Haniger was, I you know, probably the fourth most, uh, most interesting player who was exchanged in that trade. But I think we need to just start talking about him. Like he's a, an above average to, I don't know, maybe plus uh power hitting corner outfielder, mm-hmm. um, you know, 16 home runs on the year, 512 slugging percentage. And he did pretty much this last year. He would have been in, in a rookie of the year conversations in any year that Aaron judge didn't show up in the, mm-hmm. in the American league. And Segura is another guy who I, I didn't like him that much as a prospect or even when he was coming up uh, with Milwaukee, but he's, it hits for high batting average speed, you know, play shortstop. And he's a guy that I think gets underrated in, in the stat heady community. Cause he doesn't walk in because Pakoda hates him for some mm-hmm. reason. And this is like two or three years in a row where he's come out with like a one point, whatever, uh, win, uh, projection before the season. And it's just unrealistic for anybody who hits like this to, um, to, to be that bad. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, so those are two guys who I think are, and have been legitimately underrated who, uh, when you look at that Mariners lineup, these are these are places where they're winning on perception, if not based on uh, what the actual true talent was coming in. Yeah, what a win that trade has been. And Taiwan Walker, of course, out for the season. So I think you're right. I think Hanniger was great last year. He got hurt, obviously, so he was still somewhat under the radar. And With Segura, I think maybe people are still thinking of him as what he was when he came up in his Brewers seasons when he really didn't hit a whole lot and he was looked at as more of a defense first infielder. Now he's hit. This is the third year in a row that he's hit really well. This is the best of those years, but he is playing like a star right now. Hanniger is too. 
And I should have mentioned the bullpen before because the bullpen is part of this too. The Mariners have had one of the oh, three or four best bullpens in baseball this year. And if there's anything that correlates with being able to win those close games, it is having a good bullpen. And it's partly holdovers who've just been better. And it's partly guys that Jerry went out and got this past winter, about five relievers, I think. He rebuilt much of the bullpen and all those guys have been pretty good. So he did a decent job of acquiring those relievers. And Edwin Diaz is just a monster again. Mm -hmm. He is just unhittable and dominant. And having a guy like that is a good way to outplay what some of the underlying stats would say about how good you should be, although not to this extent. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've, I've given this speech on the on the pod before i know i've talked about it uh, in slack but or, or in slack and or on twitter but one of my favorites so saves are completely useless except if a, a a a closer who's on pace for an outrageous save total tells you a lot about the composition of the team mm-hmm. and edwin diaz is on pace for 61 saves the <laughs> major league record being 62 yeah and uh, what that says is he's on a team that's winning a lot, but when they win, it's close. So mm-hmm. that means not necessarily a great offense. Uh, you, and the the strength of the, t- of the team is starting pitching. And you know the Mariners somewhat surprisingly have three pretty good. You know beyond James Paxton, they have Gonzalez and LeBlanc, uh, who I think are you know certainly LeBlanc. Gonzalez is a former first rounder. They traded Tyler O'Neill for, so there were some more expectations but it's you know you only get that kind of save total it doesn't it doesn't even matter if or it doesn't even necessarily mean the team is good it just means that the team is playing a lot of close games into which this closer can insert himself yeah and i think mariners fans are mostly pretty realistic about this team and why it's winning i think the feedback i've gotten on my article there is one mariners fan who's mad at me and tweets at me every time the mariners win a close game to say oh was that a fluke <laughs> which has happened 3 or 4 it's, times just mariners since my article Twitter is an out. underrated, touchy team Twitter. Yeah. Like, it's it's not to like Cubs, Yankees, Red Sox level or Phillies level, certainly. Yeah. It's the, for the most there's, part. There's some bear to poke. Yeah. I mean, look, I can't blame that fan base for being a little bit twitchy about this team after what they've been through. This is, as everyone knows, the longest playoff drought in all of major American sports right now. So mm-hmm. we're talking about since 2001. And most of that time, the Mariners haven't really even had a shot in many of those seasons. So we're looking at 80% roughly playoff odds right now. And that's basically if you believe that the Mariners are not as good as they've looked and that they haven't really taken steps. Even if you think that they are now set up eight game lead and we're almost at the halfway point of the season, it's tough to blow that. And I think Mariners fans deserve it. That's kind of what I said in my article is it's kind of fluky. And in past seasons, when a team has done this, there's been a sense that they were getting away with something that maybe they shouldn't have gotten away with. And we would have to keep having these debates about whether they were actually good or whether they were just lucky. I feel like we're past that now. We all understand the one run record thing. We get that it's not really repeatable. But it's also really fun and exciting when it does happen. And in this case, there's no great team that the Mariners are going to beat out here. I mean, the Astros are going to win this division. It's incredible that it's as close as it is after a 12-game winning streak. 
So they'll win this division, and there's no really more deserving wildcard team out there right now. That field is pretty bleak. So if the Mariners sneak past the Angels and their run differentials are roughly even, I'm not going to be crying about that. I might be crying about no Mike Trout in the playoffs again, but the Mariners could be the luckiest team in baseball and also the most deserving of this playoff spot. And another part of that is like they're the king of of going 85 and 77 and finishing in third place. Yeah. And it feel like for the teams that they've put together, it feels like they should have fluked into a playoff spot at least once in the past five or six years. And it just and if this is the year that it happens and it happens at, you know, 102 and 60 instead of uh, 88 and 74, then then so be it. But this this next month is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. And they've it. So they uh, went May and early June, essentially. They didn't play a good team. They they uh, blew a lead in Houston um, a couple weeks ago, and I joked then, well, they were due because they hadn't lost to a good team in about six weeks. Yeah. And they're getting into, right as the Astros, and, and Zach and I talked about this, the Astros aren't going to play another team uh, with a winning record for at least another month. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Mariners just came off. Um, they played... Uh, the Angels, they split the the Red Sox, and then they've got Yankees, Red Sox again, and then uh, the Angels again later. You know, uh, in um, let's see, in the first weekend of July. So, meanwhile, the Ast- you know the Astros have that cupcake lineup over the next month. I predict the Astros are going to pull away a little bit, yeah. but if the Mariners can just keep it close, that'll be a huge achievement. Yeah, they don't really have to worry about the Astros so much as they have to worry about the Angels. And right now, it doesn't really look like they have to worry about the Angels very much. And I think another reason to get behind this team, if you're a neutral fan with no dog in this wildcard race, is just the way that the franchise is positioned and the roster is set up long term, which is not great. <laughs> it's not encouraging. And that's part of it here is that there's a sense that maybe this is the last chance or close to the last chance. We know that the farm system is perhaps the worst in baseball. It's kind of incredible that DePoto was able to make a trade already this year. People doubted whether he would be able to. We know that if he will, if anyone can, it will be Jerry finding some way to make a trade. But this is kind of an old team. It's one of the oldest collections of hitters in the majors. The pitchers are also above average in age. And you have Cano and Cruz and Seager, that whole core, of course, Felix, all aging. And you'd think on the downside. And so if it's going to happen, it really better happen now because you could be looking at a long rebuilding phase. Yeah, and particularly because, and this plays both in terms of the trade market and uh, and the rebuild that comes after this. I, you know, I don't think that I think I liked a lot of what the Mariners did with their draft, but they can't trade those guys this year. You know, Logan Gilbert out of Stetson, for instance, but they don't like they don't have a lot to deal from. Like if they wanted to go out and make their own Justin Verlander trade, as much of it as an underpay as that was last year, even assuming that a pitcher like that comes on the market, like they're not they're not players for DeGrom. Mm-hmm. If if that's if the if the Mets decide to make him available just to give one example, just cuz they don't have the prospects. So that puts puts Jerry in sort of an uncomfortable position, which makes it, you know, the Wade LeBlancs and Marco Gonzalez is all the more important. Yeah. And it's not like this is the White Sox roster pre-rebuild where you had all of these really valuable players Mm -hmm. on pretty cheap contracts that you could kind of expedite the rebuilding process when the Mariners flip that switch and turn that page. It's going to be a while, I think, unless everything somehow miraculously goes right. So 
I am rooting for the Mariners to the extent that I root for anything. We root for the story, right? And we root for the long-suffering fan base. And I think you have Mm -hmm. both here. Yeah, so that's good. That's a typical Mariners segment fashion that we go on about how we like this team and it's fun and it's cool and everything's eventually going to turn to shit. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so... If that's not characteristically Mariners, I don't know what yeah. it is. But. I'm kind of excited to see what the DePoto rebuilding phase would look like if he gets to stick around and and be the captain of that ship. Can he sit on his hands and just let players develop? I don't know what that would look like. How is he going to get his trade fix if he's just waiting for players to get older? Oh, he'll tinker around the I'm edges. sure he you will. Know, you think of teams that really went in the tank the past couple of years. You know, the Phillies were constantly making trades. The Astros made a bunch of mm-hmm. trades. You know, he'll 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 be able to, you know, I don't know where where the big pieces are coming from, but maybe, uh, you know, maybe he'll just have to keep himself amused by trading, you know, middle relievers for for double A uh, <laughs> or single A velocity yeah, guys. or podcasting. He always has that. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, uh, you know, this is fun and it'll all turn to shit and that's <laughs> a, a good place to end. So yeah. I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach Cram, Matt James, and Ben Lindbergh. Thanks to Jim Cunningham for producing today's episode. And thanks to Justin Berlander, Jacob deGrom, and Wade LeBlanc for providing content for us. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.